Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. In this episode, we travel to the mid-south of Thailand in the mid-20th century to meet with a legendary policeman who trained in martial arts and the occult so as to protect his body and the sovereign body in mortal combat with dangerous foes. That policeman was Bud Pantarak, also known as Hun Pan. Though he already has quite a number of biographers in Thai, the first English language book to tell the story of his life and times is Power, Protection and Magic in Thailand, The Cosmos of a Southern Policeman, published in 2019 by the ANU Press. The book's author is Craig Reynolds, a professor of history at the School of Culture, History and Language at the Australian National University. He's speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, an associate professor in the Department of Political and Social Change, also at the ANU. Craig, thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me about your new book. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about it. Craig, how did you learn about Kun Pan, and at what point did you decide that you needed to write a book about him and his times? Well, it was quite by accident that I came upon this topic and this person. One of my students gave me a book about him and about his special talents in both magic and policing. And I finally had a chance to look at this book. I was finishing a big project about an entirely different topic. And I read this book and I was absolutely amazed because I'd never read anything like this about Buddhism and monasteries and policing. And this policeman was trained, so to speak, initiated in a monastery in southern Thailand and given special spells and rites to make him stronger, along with a lot of other men who had been trained at the monastery. So it was an introduction to him and his violent methods. And one day when I had visited the South, I'd actually had previous experience in southern Thailand in my youth, where I was a teacher in English in a school on the West Coast in Krabi province on the other side of the Malay Peninsula. And on my visit to this province where the policeman ended his career, I was taken to his son's house. And when I went into the house, there was a statue of him. And I thought, oh, this is a statue of someone three-quarter size. And the householder said, oh, no, no, this is his actual height. And I thought, gosh, he's not very tall. He couldn't have been more than 160 or 165 centimeters tall. Very, very slight man. On my next visit to the uh, province, I was able to interview his son. And that kind of led to the interest that I had in finding out more about him. He was famous for his violence. Uh, He was 
known to, to take no prisoners, so to speak. He offered the miscreant the opportunity to surrender. And if he refused, then the policeman would take stronger action. The long and short of it is that the policeman became a lens that allowed me to see things that surprised me. And this led to be interested in everything about him, where he came from, what he did and why, and what were the historical contexts for his deeds. That was how I got into the topic. And the historical context, the setting for the book is, as I mentioned already, the Mid-South in the mid-20th century. Where is that? And what kind of a place was it back then when Kun Pan was active? Well, his years of activity were really from about 1930 through to the 1950s, and he retired in 1964. And it's an interesting time in Thai history. It hasn't been very much written about Southern Thailand. Unlike Northern Thailand, which has its own historical field, really. I mean, there are, there are many scholars in Thailand who study Lanai history, as it's called. And the Northeast has considerable attention by local scholars and also by um, scholars in the, in the capital. But the South is, is an odd place because it doesn't have a real regional history. The um, southernmost part of the country on the Malay Peninsula, closest to the Malaysian border, is uh, Malay Muslim in large part. This is the remnants of, a, of an anthropole and city-state known as Patani. There's a province called Patani. But the midsection of the peninsula, the Mid-South and the Upper South, have, have historically had, had a lower Muslim population. The, the result of this is that there isn't really a, a unity to the, to the southern part of the country. So there's very little regional history of the South. These years in the decades from 1932 after the war and up through the 1950s are interesting because the southern part of the country was really still being populated. The population of the south was the lowest of the, of the four regions of the country. It was really a frontier society. The writ of government was very weak. It took many decades for the central government to really exert its control over the, over the south. And some of the banditry that Kumpan, as we call him, was dealing with was resistance to the encroachment of the central government, particularly in the 30s and through the war years. Another key period, of course, is the war. And during the war and after the war, the um, number of uh, munitions and uh, ordnance weaponry increased. So... Um, Unrest became more violent, and the police methods became more violent to curtail this unrest. And the weaponry, of course, in the hands of the police increased as well. So the war years and after the war, the second half of the 1940s, were particularly violent in the South. And this is when most of Kunpan's alleged fatalities took place. There's a list of the number of people that he and his men killed. 62. I don't quite know the source of this list. And some people I talked to said, well, there had to be more people that he killed. So he's representing sovereign power, but he's remote from that power. He has to rely greatly on his own 
resourcefulness, effectively standing in for sovereign power and expressing it through his actions. And this brings us to the central and recurrent point throughout the book, and that's his concern with managing risk, with building his invulnerability through methods that were both mundane and supramundane. And he took an interest in these methods from early on in his life, didn't he? Could you Tell us a little bit about how his search for knowledge to obtain those protections began as a young man. Who was this Kunpan before he became the lion lawman of the Mid-South? I might say just a little bit about his early youth because it's a key to understanding his character, I think. Not only was he a very short man, but the other interesting thing about his early life is that When he was in uh, primary school, he suffered a very serious disease, pretty much unknown now in the modern world because of antibiotics. And this was yaws, which can be a disfiguring disease and can be fatal. And he spent at least a year and probably more at home recuperating. I talked to one person who had met him, who has a weapons museum in uh, the west side of Bangkok. And he made the most interesting point that he thought that Kun Pan felt that he had cheated death more than once in his line of work, but also in his childhood. And this feeling of cheating death and his very, very slight stature meant that he, if he was going to be an effective policeman, he had to build himself up in some way. After his recovery from this illness, his family sent him to Bangkok to finish his uh, schooling. And it's quite clear from a number of Thai sources that I found that right from the get-go in Bangkok, he was investigating this magical knowledge that the Thais call Sayasat. Throughout his life, both early when he was studying in Bangkok at the police academy in the second half of the 1920s and in his first assignment in Patlung province, he took a very serious interest in this body of knowledge, Sayasat, which is a mixture of spells and rites and practices that are deemed to confer an element of personal protection and vulnerability. The Thais have a, an expression, which means a person under the toughened skin. And these uh, spells and rites and practices are believed to confer a certain amount of protection from bullets and blades. The uh, first posting he had in southern Thailand in, in Patamun province, which is uh, neighbors in the Konsi Tamarat and forms one of the three provinces that are really this, the uh, core of his activities, there was this monastery in a limestone hillock cave monastery where monks had lived for several centuries And there's a suggestion that some of the knowledge that was dispensed in this cave monastery by master teachers came from its earlier history where Brahmins had lived in the monastery. There are several Brahmanic family lines in southern Thailand. I think perhaps they're they're dying out now, but they were very important, not only in in local religious practice and and, uh, so forth, but also in assisting the central government in reassembling the coronation rituals at the end of the 18th century when uh, the capital, the royal capital, was moved from uh, Utia to Bangkok. So this this pursuit of this uh, knowledge was kind of part of his character. It, is, it was not unique to him, of course, 
but it was a kind of personal mission that he pursued throughout his life, and he became uh, a master of it. And everywhere he went, he would seek out the uh, local practitioners, whether they were uh, monks or some of the bandits, in fact, that he pursued. He spent his life accumulating this magical knowledge. So what kind of powers exactly did it deliver to him and how did he use them in combat? And to add to a point that you already made, in as much as his foes also were trying to accumulate this knowledge, how did he outwit them if both sides, as it were, have the same prophylactics and weapons available to them? The interesting thing about some of these alleged powers is that they come from the Buddhist tradition. This is a kind of a gray area where some of the Sayasat powers and Buddhist belief kind of intersect. There are, of course, monks who deny that this is real Buddhism and denigrate the, the knowledge that can be cultivated using these special powers. At the same time, I would, I would suggest that a lot of his knowledge becomes part of his persona. He had on his hand tattooed the four consonants for the word for executioner. He would brandish this fist <laughs> uh, that if one punch could, could drive a man crazy. So I, I, I think the, the way he went into combat with these, with these bandits or when he confronted them, uh, it was a, a question of using a certain amount of bluff you know, my, my stuff is better than your stuff. But of course, in the end, it was actual weapons that were used in, in these altercations. So I don't think that the, the policeman, his, power, his powers weren't necessarily uh, superior to, to those of the people he was pursuing. But he, he pretended they were. And there are some anecdotes of how he, he would bluff his adversaries into, into submission. Or in some cases, he respected their ability to do combat and uh, came to some sort of agreement with them. But as the tattoo on his fist indicates, he did in fact uh, kill many people, including his first uh, fatal fight in which he himself nearly died. Can you tell us about that? It's unclear what happened. One thing about this man is that uh, he was a a master of his own myth-making. So he began to tell stories of of his escapades and he told the story of the first person he killed by squeezing the life out of the man. He was very irritated with the police bureaucracy because they insisted on recording that that wasn't how the man died, but rather he was shot. And the family of the man was outraged that the bandit was already in custody. And why did he have to die if he was already in custody? This leads me to say something about police records, which I never was able to see, of course, I didn't have the resources. And I kind of wonder what the police records would say about some of these incidents, because it's quite clear that his version of things sometimes differed from what the police bureaucracy would have preferred. Uh, on occasion, when, when he did kill someone, he was simply given another post. He didn't spend all of his time in the South. He spent a lot of his time just north of Bangkok, during the war, that's where he that's where he was uh, posted, and after the war, and came back to uh, the South only at the end of the 1940s. I guess the other thing to say about this man and about the process that was taking place, where Bangkok authority was being exerted on the entire country, 
the kingdom was kind of being filled up by administrative units appointed by Bangkok. And this man, he was, in a sense, at one with the rural types that he was pressing. The Thai language has a term for him, which is Nuklang Murbrat. Now, Nuklang is a social type. It's probably pretty much vanished from the rural landscape, although you still hear the term used from time to time. And this is a, originally a, a term that referred to characters that hung around gambling halls and uh, opium dens and so forth in the 19th century. And Kunpan was called a mukling, and mukrap is the word for uh, someone who suppresses. Brap is one of these key words in policing that you still hear. It's a term for suppression and arrest. And suppression can mean, of course, roughing someone up in the course of an arrest. And one of the tasks I had to do was to try to tell the story of policing, and particularly provincial policing, because there hasn't been a real good study, in, in English anyway, and not even in time, of police history. I, I guess to finish the point about this knuckling mubrap is that the modern police force, such as it came into existence, particularly the provincial police from the 1920s and 30s on, had to come to terms with rural society. And in doing so, it kind of had to adapt itself. And Kunpan is an example of this kind of adaptation. So the provincial police really began in the about the second decade of the 20th century, the 1920s. And the Police officers were trained by uh, a squad of Danish uh, military figures who were imported by the Bangkok government, the central government. I don't know that Kunpan was ever ever made the acquaintance of one of these Danish officers, but these these officers imbued in the in the gendarme uh, in the provincial police a kind of modernity that was unfamiliar to the, the peasant recruits that they were training. And this is an example of this kind of clash between the modern trained policemen and the rural people that, that were being trained. And you write of an episode in which Kunpan expected that he was going to be dismissed from service as a result of a problematic drug seizure, and he ended up being promoted through the ranks ultimately because of that action. What was that about, and how does that inform us about the character of the police service in Thailand in this period? Well, this incident happened, I can't remember the date, I think it was probably during the war, perhaps after the war. And the uh, police chief at the time was General Pao Sianon, who was uh, chief in the 1950s until he went into exile in 1957-58. Kunpan was, was on a train and interrogated a couple of soldiers who were carrying a large suitcase that he was suspicious of and turned out to contain opium. And he arrested these characters, and uh, the opium turned out to belong to General Pao, who is a very interesting figure in police history. He's one of two uh, police chiefs that of the dozen that uh, Kung Pan worked for that I talk about in the book. General Pao was a very controversial figure because he was a, a key contact for the Central Intelligence Agency during his years as police chief. 
Macau in exchange for helping the CIA to do its business in Thailand after the war, uh, was kind of given free reign to conduct his drug business in uh, northern Thailand and, and Laos. Anyway, the opium seizure belonged, turned out to belong to Pao, and Pao demanded that uh, Kun Pan appear in Bangkok. And Kun Pan did appear, went to Bangkok in, in his civilian clothes. And Pao said, uh, according to the story, why are you wearing civilian clothes? And Kun Pan said, well, I expect that you're going to sack me for seizing your opium. And Pao said, on the contrary, you know, you've been a loyal policeman and in the end, Kumpan received one of Pao's prize knight's rings, K-N-I-G-H-T. Pao invented these uh, symbols of loyalty. They were made of, uh, some of them were diamonds, some of them were just gold. Pao used the gift of these rings to cement loyalty between his uh, favorite officers and himself. Pao, of course, lost out in the power struggle to General Sarit in 1957 and 58 and left Thailand for good. As a result, he went into exile in Switzerland where he died. Interestingly, uh, and this is something about the history of policing, there's a lot of back and forth between the police and the military. There are some examples I give in the book of how this is still the case today, where the army is actually doing the work of police. Powell had been a commissioned army officer and became police chief as a result of this. The other police chief that I discuss in the book, Lieutenant General Adun Decharat was also a commissioned army officer and was part of the 1932 coup group. I wanted to say something about a comment that I came across in a report by an American aid official in 1970 that I thought was rather insightful about why the police have the reputation they do. There's a certain amount of fear and apprehension people have of police, even today. At the same time, in the countryside, and this is still true today, there's a certain amount of fraternization that takes place between local people and police, because the police, they're not always dealing with crime. They're sometimes dealing with minor complaints that people have. And there has to be a kind of rapport between local police and the population. This comment by the American official, whose name was Albert Weed, I thought was insightful because he says in 1970 that the police are imbued with an emotional significance that does not attach to other agents of government. And I thought this was something that I could see in the policeman's behavior and the way he went about his business. And it, it has to do with this persona that he performed or portrayed. There was a, a lawyer that I spoke to in the South who had been on a train just after the war. He's sitting in a carriage and people were talking away as they do. And Kumpan entered the carriage and strolled up the aisle. And suddenly everyone in the carriage stopped talking. And th this is the emotional significance that attaches to the police that is not the case with other agents of government. I used this comment as I went about going through the material because it just, it just seemed to me that this emotional attachment and the fear and apprehension runs like an iridescent thread through the policeman's life. 
I also was really attracted to this usage, the aura of apprehension that you take from Albert Weird. And I think what caught my attention is that on the one hand, he did have tremendous powers and a sense of confidence in his own abilities. On the other hand, he also is offering up himself bodily as a kind of representative of sovereign power that exceeds what it's actually capable of doing. That's the aura, in a sense, that's that representation of excess of capacity. And this comes back again and again in the book, right? Some of your interlocutors are saying that, well, they don't think he was really killing all of these people or able to do so many of the things that he had done. And you yourself remarking on the, how he's a tremendous storyteller, and us, at least some of these accounts are apocryphal. I'm struck by how well this captures the idea and practice of the state itself, or or more to the point, I think what Timothy Mitchell has referred to as a state effect, which is both practical and spectral, right? The point is that it's not the hegemonic quality that he's bringing with him. Rather, the state presence has to be constantly invoked in order that it materialize in some form. The policeman is literally doing that. He is forming the state in the Mid-South through his actions. Was that your intention in using that characteristic phrase or of apprehension? You've gotten at something that expresses very well what I, I tried to do in the book. I can't improve on what you've said except to just give you two details. One is that when I gave an early talk about this in uh, Chiang Mai, I was concentrating on the, uh, the Mid-South dimension to it all. He just loved the Mid-South. He, he had very little interest in uh, any kind of upper command appointment. He, he wasn't interested in serving in Bangkok. But when I gave this talk in Chiang Mai, one of the questions from the Thai colleagues was, well, don't forget that he's an agent of the state. And I thought, yes, I must bear that in mind. And one of the early comments I got in a journal article I wrote, published in 2011, I was asked, you know, is this person somebody who belongs to the South or is he something beyond that? And as you've pointed out, he does represent this excess of capacity, even though it's not actually materialized. And the other detail that makes this point that you've expressed very well is that he spoke Southern ties as his mother tongue. And I assumed that he did his work speaking Southern Thai. Well, I was told emphatically by one of the last people I interviewed that had had met him, oh, no, he always spoke Central Thai. That was his authority, that he was an agent of the national government. The interesting thing about his life is that although he is a creature of the South, he loves the South, he's a native of the South, he begins his life there, he ends his life there. But in the course of his career, he travels all over the country. In this sense, he does materialize the forming of the modern nation state because he's circulating information and circulating skills and practices and whatnot as a practitioner of the Syosat elsewhere in the country. He actually only becomes a national figure and known to the national community as a result of the amulet that he helps to concentrate in the late 1980s. And that's another chapter that I deal with in the book. We'll speak about that now, because what you were just saying about what he embodied in some ways to me evoked some of what you're saying about the amulets as 
an amalgam of qualities that draw from different parts of the country across the realm and also the supernatural realm. What was this amulet and why was it so unusual and so unusually successful? And for listeners who may be unfamiliar with Thailand, for their benefit, Craig, a short primer on amulets would be useful. This amulet business, the amulet market, is a fairly recent phenomenon. It's been traced back to the 19th century. It's not something... It goes deep into the past, although the morphology, the iconography of these amulets is based on um, early relics and Buddhist votive tablets. In the 20th century, the, the market for these amulets accelerated. It became a multi-million baht business in Thailand. There are many kinds of amulets. There are Buddhist amulets, which are little figures of the Buddha encased in plastic or glass covers. And these can be worn around the neck. And some policemen and military people have collections of these and pride themselves in building collections of these. You can see photographs of some policemen wearing three, four, five, a half a dozen of these amulets around their neck. But there are many other kinds of sacred objects that people purchase, and they're often used in uh, fundraising activities for monasteries and schools. In the uh, late 1980s, in the Kwan Sitamarat, a new police chief came to the province, and he was instrumental in organizing the fashioning of a new amulet to raise funds for the renovation of, of a shrine in the center of the city called the City Pillar Shrine. Kunpan became a key figure in the origins of this, of this amulet because he identified through a spirit medium's drawing the deity that should be used to create the amulet. And this was in 1987. There's a photograph in the book of a a fruit seller that was very proud to show me his amulet. It's called the Datukam Ramateb amulet. But it was very large. It's kind of the size of a large biscuit, large cookie. And uh, was therefore not very popular with women, but was very popular with men. Initially, the amulet sold for... I don't know, 10, 20 baht, wasn't very expensive at all. But then when the policeman died in 2006, supposedly at the ripe age of 108, but I think that's probably inflated. There are other dates in his cremation biography that suggest he was only maybe 103, still pretty old. Anyway, the cremation in February 2007 was a grand affair attended by the then Crown Prince of Thailand, who was the present king, Rama X. And the amulet was distributed. A little medallion was distributed, but also some of the amulets were sold at the event. And it became sort of a, a minor uh, financial bubble because of something that happens at the cremations where the numbers associated with the crematee's birth and death, the numbers associated with his horoscope, and the numbers associated with the day of his death and his age, which was questionable, people invested in this amulet. And there was a kind of value appreciation overnight. The presence of the Crown Prince of Thailand, the 200,000 people at the, crowding around the uh, province on the day of his cremation, it became a kind of national phenomenon. And monasteries all over the country began to copy this amulet and sell them. And it was really the 
national attention to the amulet that brought the policeman's life to national attention. It wasn't his policing activities. There has been a film made of the policeman, uh, cops and robbers sort of film with lots of shooting and uh, it's only for the aficionado. But he rocketed the national attention with the value of the amulet. And it's because of that, really, that his life became better known. Speaking of film, uh, you were involved in putting together a number of pieces of film associated with the book, and they are available on the ANU Press website, along with the book itself, which can be downloaded at no cost. Why did you decide to have this visual content and how do you see it as making the book what it is? Making these videos was the idea of my spouse, who writer, who said that she was always disappointed in uh, academic books because they didn't try to make contact with the, with the general public. Well, I don't know that these videos actually achieve that. But anyway, this was her idea. And so I, I spent two days uh, with a film crew in southern Thailand producing the footage that, that formed the basis for the videos. A young uh, a student, uh, his name is Oliver Friedman very talented filmmaker, edited these videos into, I think there are six of them now, a prologue and then one for each chapter. Well, what's interesting about these videos is that they were put up initially on the Australian National University website. And now and then I check on how many people have watched them. And the two most popular chapters are the second chapter, which is about the policeman's life, the kind of here's what he did and when he did it. But the chapter that tops the ranks is the amulet chapter. And it's quite clear because of the amulet business. That's why uh, that particular video is so widely viewed. Making the, Doing the footage and traveling around for two days with his film crew was very instructive, particularly in trying to capture a physical sense of what this part of the country is like, because it's a very distinctive environmental niche, I call it. One of the distinctive features are these limestone outcrops. They're more prominent in the West Coast, limestone karsts, both inland and also uh, offshore. This is where I spent a couple of er my early years teaching English. But they're also uh, across the peninsula on the East Coast, and this is the limestone feature where the policeman originally was initiated into this uh, Syosat knowledge. In earlier centuries, there was a sea channel that ran past Nakonsi Tamarat and then down to Songkla, but past Patalu, which had a port, and seagoing vessels could navigate this channel, which gradually silted up and left a peninsula called the Septing Prat Peninsula that runs uh, north-south from Nakonsi Tamarat down towards Songkla. And what is left now of this sea channel are three lakes, a lagoon in the south that empties out into the sea at Songkla, and a rather large lake called the Songkla Lake in the center, and then a tiny little remnant of the sea channel near Nakonsi Tamarat called uh, Little, Little Lake, a wonderful uh, uh, setting 
And it's in one of the videos. There are some great shots of lakes features there on the East Coast. And there's a lot of uh, bird life, aquatic life in the in the Little Lake. And also the, uh, the larger Songklaw Lake is a very uh, active uh, fisheries source for local people where they, when, when I was there in November a few years ago, uh, they were fishing uh, freshwater anchovies with dip nets. And the dip net activity is uh, one of the spectacular uh, shots in, in the video. These lakes, which border Patalung, uh, Songkla, and Nakonchitamara, help to form this um, environmental niche, give a character to it. The other thing that gives a character to the three provinces is uh, bullfighting. It's um, bulls butting heads. They go at it for three, four, five, ten minutes until one of the bulls passes water and retires, and then the victorious bull is paraded around the ring. The Saturday that I viewed these uh, bullfights, uh, there was a big sign that said no gambling, but I can tell you there was plenty of gambling going on in the stands. I have something to say in the book about the rural culture of manliness that's associated with bullfighting, and there's some interesting uh, literature on this that comes from the Mid-South, which, should I say, claims to be the center of the origin of bullfighting in Thailand. If only the bullfights had been broken up, you had to flee. That would have been a reenactment of a famous scene from Indonesia and fitting for this particular book. Craig, you write in the book's preface that the project that led to the book was the most collaborative you've undertaken. Was that partly because of these videos or for other reasons? It's for other reasons, because one of my first trips to the South, before I was totally engaged with this project, I went to visit one of my students who had a full-time teaching position at the university in the Kornsi Tamarat, Patrick Jory. Through his offices and, and the people he knew, uh, I had a number of field trips with local scholars. A couple of them were primary school teachers. A couple of them were academics at the local teacher's college. These people were absolutely instrumental in helping me navigate through the region and finding out uh, the kind of people I should talk to. They also had local uh, dialect, uh, Southern Thai, which I don't have. And another very key figure who was Kunpan's most prolific biographer, I interviewed him three times. This was one source of collaboration with people in the Mid South, but there were also people in Bangkok who could tell me interesting things that I didn't know and could point me to the kinds of things I should be reading. And as I said at the outset, in the case of one of my former students, actually gave me a, a book that set me off on this adventure. You write of Kunpan's Thai biographers that they tend to be careful to withhold judgment about his actions in killing so many, if not gratuitously, and at least without compunction. Given the collaboration and the way that you think through and approach your topics, perhaps you've also withheld judgment in this book. Would that be an apt characterization or not? I don't think so. In fact, I wrote the biography chapter last. Of course, I had a pretty good idea about his career, but I wrote chapter two last because there was this very large five, 600-page biography by the um, Southern writer who now lives in Bangkok, Sampan Gongsumu. But there are some details in there that make it clear that there's some uh, brutality. I don't think I condemn him, but I don't think I glorify what he did. There's a certain amount of, of myth-making on his part, as I said earlier. 
I, I recognize that. His biographer, Mr. Sampan, said that when he first went to interview Kunpan, he, he seemed to roll off the stories like he had them recorded or something. And I later found out that that's because he'd been telling the stories already for some 10 years. So as you tell a story, it gets better and better. But there were details in this man's biography of Kunpan that are pretty hair-raising, and I report these. So I don't think I withheld judgment on that. I wanted, I wanted to get inside his world, let's put it that way as best I could. And that meant reporting what he reported. I'm struck by how people who write about you and your work make this observation precisely, that that's how you go about doing your work. And I was also struck by the reference to the amulet as a work of bricolage that you make at one point in the book, because Maurizio Pelleggi has also used that term to describe your work in as much as you assimilate ideas from various intellectual traditions in what he describes as a functional and non-doctrinaire manner and put them to good use. Would you agree with that characterization of your work? And if so, would you say that this book is another example of the same? I think the bricolage comment is true. I don't think it's unusual for historians to look at work outside the empirical base to be inspired. I did read widely. I haven't reported enough on the extent I went to try to understand risk. There's a lot about it in the book. Risk-taking is really one of the themes because the policeman was constantly at risk. He risked his life. And what did he do to counter this risk? I read a lot about magic. Marcel Mos. Bruce Kapfer was very helpful, an anthropologist who has done some work in subfield of anthropology, dealing with psychology, Schrader, uh, to understand the, the relationship between policing and the sovereign body. I read Agamben, and then I had something to say about that. The policeman purportedly went about his operations carrying a chris, which is a symbol of Malay sovereignty, and a ceremonial sword that he got from a noble family in north-central Thailand, which is a symbol of royal sovereignty. So there was something to talk about there. I took advantage of these things that I was reading to make certain points. I didn't talk enough in in earlier remarks about what I tried to do with the term magic, which was, as Bruce Kaffer says, de-exoticize magic. Why, Why does magic make sense in this world? And the reason it makes sense is that, that the world that the, the man lives in is self-confirming. He reads up horoscopes. He can do horoscopes. He does horoscopes when he selects his police team to do an operation because he, he needs to have certain kinds of people. If he expects a violent encounter, he doesn't want a policeman who's going to be a coward. So he reads the horoscope and he selects the people that fit the job. Magic, after all, is different from Buddhism in the sense that the ideal of the Buddhist monastic is withdrawal from the world, whereas magic is a system of knowledge that embraces the world in order to control it. It's a very different kind of thing. And that's what the policeman needed. And that's the world he lived in. So, yeah, I think bricolage is a fair characterization, but I've never seen myself as a theorist. The trouble with theory is that it can bring a certain amount of orthodoxy to your work, enforces a kind of orthodoxy, and you want to be 
free to make your own interpretation of the evidence. And I, uh, I felt that I was able to do that in this book. Well, I guess I guess all, all of the things I've done, particularly the biographical work I've done, I have found it liberating to come to my own conclusions, even if inspired by some social science and humanist thinkers. Craig, although you formally retired in 2007, you've continued to research and write, and this monograph is among the many articles, essays, and book reviews that you've published since, as well as working as an editor. And I understand that there's a volume of your essays due out shortly in Thai as well. And in closing, can you tell us about that and anything else that we can look forward to from you in the near term? Well, one of the uh, things that I didn't manage to do quite the way I wanted to was in the last chapter, and that is uh, thrown over this whole story is the idea of protection, which I came to think is one of the basic functions of government is protecting people. And there's, there's some uh, details in there about the Thai language and the word for government that suggests that the government is a, a kind of protector. That is a kind of theme in the book. I tried to uh, portray the policeman as being interested in the protection of his own body as well as the protection of the, of the realm. And in the last chapter, there's a, a story about a Buddha image that was uh, cast in the mid-1960s. And I go into the lineage of this Buddha image. And in 1965, shortly after the Communist Party of Thailand announced its insurrection against the government, the, the king cast a Buddha image that had a little tablet fixed to its base. Copies of this image were sent to every province in the kingdom. Now, what was in this little amulet at the base of the image was elements of the king's own body, cuttings from his hair. And at one point, I thought I saw evidence of his nail clippings also. So the compound that the amulet is made of is a compound of elements of the king's body, as well as different auspicious substances from around the kingdom, soil, piles from famous monasteries, ground up, and so forth and so on. In every province in the kingdom, this image is located. The first visit that the king made to the um, province that had one of these images was in Nongkai province in the northeast, which was a front line in the war against the communist insurgency in uh, what was then communist Southeast Asia. So I wasn't able to really finish this story because I didn't have illustrations. And there's a book coming out uh, this year with an essay that I've written telling the story more completely and illustrating the story with images that the editors uh, have helped me acquire. So um, that, that's a kind of post-Kumpan book extrapolation of something that I didn't quite finish. The book of essays coming out this year, I think at the end of February, I'm now told, is nine essays uh, written quite some time ago. The first one, I think, is 1983, Marxism in Thailand. They've all been translated by Thai colleagues. Several of them come from the National Identity and Defenders book that I edited some years ago. The last essay I'm particularly happy with because it, it's being published in Thai with the title that I had originally imagined for it, which is The Social Bases of Autocracy of Autocratic Rule in Mainland Southeast Asia. It's an opposite end to the book because uh, what we see in Southeast Asia today is exactly that. It isn't just the military monarchy buttressed by constitutional law that's got its hold on Thai political 
society now and is pushing forever into the future, the prospect of elective democracy. But it's a feature of the rest of the of the region. One party states in Laos and Vietnam, a man who's been in power since the late 1970s in Cambodia, the coup in Burma in early 2021 last year. There's something about the political structures in mainland Southeast Asia that need to be explained. And I did my best in a, in a brief essay that's been very ably translated by a, a young teacher colleague in Thailand. And I'm very happy that that's going to appear in the book too. And for uh, listeners who might be interested in that book, what's the title? It's called so the translation is something like letters from the edge of the world, thinking about the past and the present. I have an epilogue that I've called a last letter <laughs> from the edge of the world. Sometimes Australia seems like at the edge of this other world that I've spent <laughs> so much time trying to understand. So on that note, Craig Reynolds, thank you so much for speaking to me about power protection of magic in Thailand. Well, thanks very much again, Nick, for the opportunity to talk about it. And listeners, if this episode was of interest to you, then why not check out the interview that I did with Tong Chai Winichukun on his Moments of Silence, The Unforgetting of the October 6, 1976 Massacre in Bangkok, or alternatively, Olivia Porter talking with Sam Van Schaik about Buddhist magic divination, healing, and enchantment through the ages. These are just two among the thousands of interviews available to you on every conceivable topic and book via the New Books Network website or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.